Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, the Heart Guy, and I welcome you to our exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart Guy Presents The Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subject of heart disease and heart failure and everything related to that in today's ever-changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest an inspiring leader in the heart and lung transplant and global medical communities, Dr. David Joyce. Dr. Joyce began his medical career upon graduating from the Harvard School of Medicine in 2002. From there, he went on to do a residency in general surgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, which he completed in 2008. While in residency, Dr. Joyce took two years off to do research at Texas Medical Center. He then went on to Stanford University Hospital in California, where he completed his residency in cardiothoracic surgery in 2011. That wasn't enough. Dr. Joyce received his master's in business administration at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business in 2020. He has been a senior associate consultant at the Mayo Clinic, and now Dr. Joyce is both cardiothoracic surgeon and the surgical director of heart and lung transplant at Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Joyce, welcome to The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter. Thanks, Gary. Great to be here. So glad to have you. Uh, it is our pleasure, of course. So, Dr. Joyce, I'm, I'm going to throw you a, a straight fastball first. Uh, where did you grow up, and when did you know you were going to be a doctor? So, I grew up in the Twin Cities, and at that time, my father was a, a cardiac surgeon in one of the private practice groups there, and, and he's really always been my hero and my role model. So, I don't think there's any chance I would have found my way into a career in cardiac surgery if it hadn't been for, for his mentorship. And, and it's great that we, we can have a leader in our family, a father or a mother, to guide us at the beginning. Uh, it's certainly an advantage there. I picked really good parents. That's probably the most important thing I ever did. Yeah, it's, good. it's a great lesson, too. Uh, I feel the same way. I'm very proud of my kids. And if I have a legacy, it's my kids, uh, no matter what I do. So I agree with you right there. For sure. I want to I want to jump right in because we have so much to cover, and I know that as regards uh, heart and lung transplant, especially, you said that safety is paramount to performing surgery, and even whether you are not uh, able to perform the surgery on a patient who has qualified for heart transplantation. What are some of the things that make it unsafe to do this type of surgery? Well. There's, we actually published a paper uh, a number of years ago with specifically looking at heart transplant to look at what are the different risk factors for somebody not having a, a good outcome. And it turns out those risk factors come in three different categories. They come in risks that the recipient brings to the table. They come in the form of donor risks. And then there's sort of a third category of risks that involve the interplay of the two. So for example, if we take an organ from a thousand miles away, that comes, even the same organ would be a lot less risky if we took it from inside our own hospital just because of the fact that the heart deteriorates over time when you take it out of the body. And so even with the fastest jet, we're going to lose a little bit of uh, quality with that, with that particular donor recipient match. And so, um, so you know, really the, the safety issue turns out to be a combination of, of those three different types of risks. Yeah, so interesting. And, and then the next consideration that you uh, mentioned is durability. So just because you're able to do a transplant or even an LVAD surgery, you need to know it will last long enough to make it worth the effort for both you and especially for the patient, I suppose. Is there an instance where you would not even try an LVAD surgery? Uh, this surgery seems, at least to me, to be the last resort. 
I think as long as you feel like you can get the patient out of the hospital and back to a, a good quality of life, then I think that it makes sense to go ahead with an LVAD. Obviously, LVADs, uh, you can just pull them off the shelf. Nobody, nobody is made worse off by you taking a chance by putting an LVAD in somebody even if they are high risk. However, there are certain things that if they're in place, you know, going into the surgery would, would cause us to think twice. And I think there is, I don't think we have an official age limit. I know there's people in their mid eighties that are running around and, you know, bungee jumping and who knows what else, you know, with, with an LVAD. There's a lot, we hear a lot of stories about, you know, octogenarians that are doing quite well with an LVAD. So I don't think there's a hard and fast rule about an upper age limit, but age is something that would cause us to think twice if somebody's really an advanced age group. And then the other things that start to come into play are if the other organs are failing. So for example, if somebody's in renal failure, that would be another thing that would not necessarily be a deal breaker, but it would definitely cause us to really think hard about whether we're doing the right thing by moving ahead with a big surgery like that. Yeah, so interesting. So now, you know, I'm from from what I know, at least I myself am very seriously considering moving to Los Angeles so that I may have a greater chance at a heart at Cedar Sinai, for example, because unfortunately, the numbers here in New York, where I'm currently a patient at North Shore University Hospital, are simply not as favorable. I, I really love my team but it doesn't seem like we are in as good a position as perhaps a California hospital. Can you talk a little bit about the allocation system and how the changes that took place in 2018 made things a little better for patients waiting on the middle of the list, like me, if it did help at all? Well, I think that the allocation system changes that occurred in October of 2018 really shuffled the deck. I think up until then, we all kind of had a pretty good idea about, you know, what the odds were, depending on your blood type, depending on how big you were and where you were geographically located. I think we all had a pretty good ballpark idea of what to expect in terms of your waiting time and what kinds of quality organs you would get and so forth. And I think in that era, we did see a lot of people uh, dual listed or multiple listed as a, as a strategy for trying to get a little better access to an organ. And obviously, there's some controversy involved in, in doing that. But that, that was something that we did see. After the allocation system changed, though, the really the rules all changed with it. And so now, in order to get a the, to be the highest priority for an organ, you have to be on certain types of short-term support devices. And just as a very gross generalization of the system, if, you know, there's six different statuses now. There used to be about three. And the, the first status is somebody who's on ECMO, which is a life-saving um, heart-lung machine-type device that, that you have to be in the ICU hooked up to it, uh, supporting you to be a status one. As you go down from there, there's another category of devices that also require you to be in the ICU hooked up to a machine, but these are a little less invasive than, than what we consider ECMO to be, but these also get you very high status at status two. Then as we start getting further down the list, we start getting into more of the traditional types of patients that we had managed in the old system. These would be people with durable LVADs, and if, if somebody had an LVAD in place and they were home, you know, getting along okay, they would be a status four. Of course, if they had certain complications with the VAD, then they would that would actually bump them up to a status three. The other statuses are probably less important because it's not as common that we get organs for those patients, but you can see how the whole, the whole strategy has kind of changed a little bit if your goal is to get your patient to a heart transplant. 
So going to California would uh, it would certainly change the geography and the, the number of donors available. And, and there are still some geographic restrictions in place, although those changed as well in 2018. But I think now um, the, the way that most people are getting transplanted is through one of these short-term devices that we have them on in the ICU. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to do a little segue here and I'll, I'll tell you just starting off with my own situation after two aborted heart transplants uh, six weeks on ECMO, uh, an aortic dissection repair, and then an LVAD surgery, all within three weeks pe- uh, period back in January 2019. I am now, again, a very stable L- LVAD patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on the transplant list again, but many patients have received LVADs as destination therapy. Has there been a change in the philosophy with regard to long-term use of mechanical circulatory devices like mine. And I guess I'm hinting at the acceptance of the DCD heart transplant approach, which I would like to spend most of our time talking about today. So I understand DCD is donation after cardiac death. So my, and my understanding is that in answer to the increased demand of heart transplants, there's been work over the several past years, uh, at least in a new approach to heart transplantation. And if I understand this correctly, we're talking about the difference between donation after brain death and donation after circulatory death. So, Dr. Joyce, could you start off by describing the basic difference between DCD and DBD transplantation procedures and also the benefits of the DCD approach to traditional heart transplant, a, a bit more basically for myself and especially for our listeners? Yeah, so that I think I'm really glad you brought that up because that is... I think that is really important for the thousands of patients like you who are uh, eligible for a transplant, doing great on an LVAD, but because of this new system, may not be waiting for months, but maybe many years to get high enough on the list to be able to to get a, a high quality organ. I think that the exciting story with DCD has created opportunities so that even if you're a status four or a status six even, you can, uh, you know, even people with the lowest priority, I think, have a really good shot at a really good organ. And so it, I, it's a little bit of a long story, but I think it's, it's interesting enough that I'll, I'll spend a little time on that. A lot of people don't realize that the very first heart transplant that was ever performed in the world in South Africa was a DCD transplant. And that was because in 1967, when that transplant occurred, we didn't have brain death criteria. Brain death wasn't a thing. That didn't happen until Harvard Medical School uh, in 1968 uh, formed an ad hoc committee that came up with these different criteria that we now use to define someone as actually being brain dead. And so up until then, the only way that you could be dead was if your heart had stopped. But as the early pioneers in transplantation realized, just because your heart stopped, and just because in the process of having your heart stop, there would be damage to your brain that would prevent you from ever living again. Nevertheless, the heart actually could still be used. And especially if you're talking about a young, healthy heart from a donor that's you know, in really good shape, that if that person were to, let's say, have a catastrophic injury to their brain, not enough to check off those boxes that we need to check off on that brain death criteria, but nevertheless, so severe that there's no chance of them ever recovering. One way that, I mean, that, that would be a patient who we would say there's really no point in keeping them alive indefinitely on a ventilator uh, if they are so, if their brain is so damaged that they're going to have absolutely no quality of life. 
I think what most of us would want for ourselves or for a family member, if that would ever happen, would be to take us off that ventilator so that we could die because our our brain isn't working anymore. Even though even though technically, you know, there's not those those exam findings that sort of put us in the brain death category. Just because you don't check off those boxes, not the same as saying that you're going to be able to have any sort of quality of life. So if somebody can't respond and they're completely out of it, you know, for most of us, if it's an unrecoverable situation, we, we would not want to be artificially supported on a ventilator for the re for who knows how many years. We just want to be allowed to pass naturally. And so the way that it works with a DCD or, and there's different, you know, the labeling gets a little awkward. I mean, donation after cardiac death is very confusing. Now, a lot of people are calling it donation after circulatory death. But I think when you understand what's going on, it's, it's much more intuitive. So if I were on a ventilator and, um, and I didn't have anything wrong with my brain, or let's say I had enough brain function that I could just breathe on my own. So let's just take the very, very basic level of brain functioning to say that if you can't breathe on your own, that's probably not a quality of life that, uh, you know, that makes sense to keep somebody on a ventilator indefinitely, uh, you know, for something like that. So what ends up happening is we take people off of the ventilator. And then again, that's, that's how I would want to be managed if I were, uh, if I had such severe brain injury that, that I had no chance of coming back. And so what happens when you take the breathing tube out on a patient who has that much brain injury is that they can't breathe anymore. They aren't able to sort of protect their airway and to uh, initiate breaths and things like that. And so in the process of kind of just letting nature take its course, the breathing stops. And then after a while, if the heart doesn't get enough oxygenated blood delivered from the lungs, the heart stops too. And then because we're so cautious and we're so careful to be sure that we're not doing anything that would cross that line between life and death, we want to be sure that somebody has passed into death before we start thinking about going in there and taking their organs out. Most hospitals will give an additional five-minute period after the last heartbeat occurs before we'll say that the patient is now officially declared dead as in the cardiac death uh, version of death and then eligible to, to donate their organs. And so only then can we send in a procurement team to open up the patient and uh, quickly remove the organs. And, and through some new technologies that we have now, we can actually get oxygenated blood flowing back into the heart which then gives us the opportunity to assess whether there's been too much damage to the heart through all that stuff I just talked about so that you couldn't use it, as opposed to what happens most of the time is that the heart comes back very nicely and, and starts beating vigorously. And at that point, instead of just throwing it away, we can do what we do for all the other organs, which are you know the lungs, the, the liver, the kidneys, even the pancreas. We can now take that heart and use it in a... Uh, in a recipient who otherwise would die without one. And for a lot of those people that don't have the high status that it takes to get a, a transplant, these organs are a really good option to get effectively the same result. Uh, the, the group that pioneered this over in the United Kingdom has shown through uh, uh, probably over 100 cases now that the, the survival outcomes and the quality of life outcomes are really identical to what we would have with a typical brain dead donor, even though we're going a very different route to, to saving those lives. So in the procedure itself, you basically take an asystolic heart, a flat line, 
out of the donor and you're reanimating it using a device of some sort. And, and as such, the heart's being perfused with oxygenated blood by using that machine. It's sort of like a, a miniature cardiopulmonary bypass machine, I, I, it sounds like. And I suppose this can leave the heart without oxygen perfusion for a lesser time than with the traditional method as well. It seems like an advantage there. It is. It's, I think of, you know, again, I grew up around cardiac surgery. So, and, and you know, when I was seven years old, my dad uh, was involved in the first operation to put a total artificial heart in a human being. So it's not like uh, new technologies and new techniques or anything new to me. It, I would say it takes a lot for me to sort of raise my eyebrows at, at something that, uh, that somebody comes up with. But I have to tell you that these DCD transplants that I've been involved in are truly some of the most dramatic and amazing things that I've ever seen in healthcare uh, since I've been observing it since a pretty young age. And I think the, the things that make it so compelling are that what I love about cardiac surgery is that it's all about timing. And, um, you know, time you know passes the same for each of us, but when it comes to our organs, there's, there's different limitations in terms of how tolerant those organs are to the passage of time. And so if we have to, for example, arrest the heart during an open, a routine open heart surgery, there's a limited number of minutes that we can leave that heart without blood flow before we'll start uh, losing its function. Some operations, we even have to stop the blood flow to the brain. So then we have to cool the patient down to a very, you know, basically freeze them. And then for a very, very brief period, we're talking, you know, only a few minutes, we can stop the blood flow to the brain to do that. But DCD procurement is almost like in a different category because the, the blood flow has stopped in the donor. And we're sitting there for five minutes after the blood flow has completely stopped. The patient is not cold. There's nothing being done to that heart to protect it from the injury of not seeing any oxygenated blood. And so from the five-minute interval when that passes, time is everything in terms of being able to saw through the sternum, get the heart uh, supported in some way to recover it. And so there are actually two different technologies to do that. One is basically nothing more than a heart-lung machine where we're able to just isolate the blood flow to the heart and to the lungs and basically just you know clamp around everything else so that the only thing we're pumping into is the heart. And that's, uh, that's one way to do it. The other way is through uh, an external pump that we have. A company named Transmedics has come up with something called the organ care system. And with that, what we do is we actually take the heart out of the body, plug it into this box, essentially, that can then deliver the oxygenated blood. And it's, it's truly amazing to watch this heart that looks like it had completely stopped and has no chance of coming back. And then after a few minutes of seeing that blood flowing through it again, all of a sudden, you start to see one contraction and then another, and then pretty soon what you're looking at is a, a, an organ that looks for all the world like a perfectly normal uh, you know, heart that you can use on a sick patient. Yeah, I, th I think I've seen a video of that heart in that box. It's, it was amazing, wasn't That's it? Amazing. It's, it's yeah. just incredible. And there's a lot of advantages. So you're using the donor blood supply, and you don't need a lot of additional equipment, really, or, or additional staff, really. So it probably saves a lot of money for the hospital, too. Yeah, and I think the most important thing is that it, it, it gives us access to organs that in the past were literally being thrown into the garbage. So all these amazing, usable cardiac donor organs, I mean, these are things that, uh, you know, to be able to harvest those 
um, it just it, it saves so many lives. I mean, we think that probably we could see even a doubling of, a, of the number of cases that we can transplant just by, by getting access to those organs. And, and so can you, can you properly assess the function of the heart? I mean, I know the heart is beating, but can you properly assess the function of the heart in the donor? You know, I think that as a heart surgeon, I'll never forget the first day that I was in fellowship and I was working with one of the senior residents and, and he told me, I want you to look at that ventricle and I want you to remember what that looks like. And it was actually on a procurement. It was a, ter- it was a perfectly normal heart. And I remember looking at it and I had only seen a small number of hearts in my life. And, and I just remember thinking, I don't know that I would really be able to pick this one out of a lineup of, you know, a couple bad ones. I, they all kind of look the same to me. But after you spend your entire career staring in the chest, looking at all kinds of different hearts under all kinds of different conditions, you become a little bit of a connoisseur of, of cardiac function. And it's almost like you're appraising a, a rare painting, you know, to try to figure out, you know, who the, who the painter was that, that did it because you've just seen so many that when you see a Rembrandt, you recognize it as, as an authentic painting. And so that's, that's kind of how it is with these PCD organs is that you've just spent your whole career just by observing what, what a normal organ looks like, that it would be like spotting a counterfeit bill if, you know, if, if you were in that, in that sort of a business. You, you know the real thing when you see it because you've just seen it so many times. Yeah, I think Malcolm Gladwell talks about that in Blink. It's the 10,000 hours thing, is, you know. Yeah. You just know it when you That's see right. it, yeah. Yeah, hard hard to describe uh, to somebody who hasn't seen enough of them. That's for yeah. sure. Um, you also don't now with these hearts. You don't. You, it saves you the, the the putting the heart on the on the organ care system also. So that, that's a good point. When we talk about these different technical approaches to DCD transplantation, they're not mutually exclusive. You can do both, and I and I think that if you're able to do this this heart lung machine approach, which the the it's kind of a huge name. It's thoracoabdominal normothermic regional perfusion, which we'll call it mm-hmm. TANRP or even just NRP just to keep it simple. Uh, with that approach, you're, you're leaving the heart in the chest. So you're watching, and you can even take the heart off the pump after it recovers so that you can even just let it perfuse the, uh, the abdominal organs and kind of watch how it performs under really normal circumstances. If you're, if you're going to transport that heart only a short distance, I don't think you really need to use that organ care system because, uh, you know, an ice bucket works pretty good as far as preserving the organ for that short transport. But I think if you're going to go anywhere, you know, long distance, which because of the allocation system, a lot of times we are, then I think that's where, the, that's where you know, the faster you can get oxygenated blood going into that heart, the better off everything's going to be. Yeah, and, and as you ma- and as you mentioned, there's two other advantages. It allows the other organs to be perfused as well, and you don't have to rush to retrieve the heart as well. So there's two big advantages there. Yeah, we we recover 1.8 more organs on average when we use TANRP than when we don't. Wow, and probably you can increase the age limit too for these hearts. I imagine, uh, you know, when make the parameters. I think so. We're obviously we're very cautious right now. I mean, you know, we're 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 fairly new to this. This is something that really wasn't being done in the United States until really just before the pandemic. But we're we're very cautious about the organs we take. But I agree with you. I think we're going to see the the day come where you know the the criteria an organ being a DCD versus DVD is not really going to matter that much to us as far as the risk to the patient. And, and you, went, you mentioned this before, but back in the 50s, you know, one of my keynotes is about the history of heart transplantation. So I've studied it a lot. It's an amazing 
journey that's happened over, over a relatively short period of time, by the way. But, you know, right. back in the 50s, we had ethical concerns, and in this case, perfusing what is essentially a cadaver. So do we have to change the definition of death if we're going to allow this to take place? Well, you know, technically you don't because of the fact your heart has stopped. So you are legally dead uh, when when a patient you know becomes a DCD donor. So, you know, from that standpoint, there's no need to change any definitions to be able to do what we're doing. Now, there are some people, and, and this is a conversation. Uh, so one of the guys who, who really is, is the, the, the real pioneer with all of this and, and has really become a good friend to me as we've been uh, learning you know, from his experience and developing our own program is, is a surgeon by the name of Stephen Suey in the United Kingdom. And I remember when we were first talking about this with him, I mean, we just kept coming back to this idea of five minutes is so long. How do we shake? Can we just shave off a little bit of time by this or that or whatever? And he always came back with the same answer. He's very patient with us. He always came back and said, well, you know, I can understand. We felt the same way early on, but you just have to trust me that that heart is going to work. Even if, you, you know, the last thing we want to do is uh, make anyone uncomfortable with the ethics of, you know, we don't need to change any rules to be able to do this. The, the you know, we can keep the same parameters that we've always had and still going to work. And that, that five minutes seems like an eternity when you're sitting there watching the, the blood pressure go down and the, and the heart stop. But uh, as we've learned, uh, these are pretty resilient organs. And even after the heart has stopped and the patient has died, there's still the opportunity there. Wow. Yeah. And I give you so much credit for doing all this to, you know, save so many people in the future. It's just uh, the, uh, you know, the, the journey that we've taken in treating a heart failure is just astounding, and and you're right in the middle of that. And to that, we thank you for that. So we've done the operation. What what's the difference after heart transplantation? The the survival rates. Do patients require ECMO after? Um, are there car cardiac output differences? You know, would I have to stay on a ventilator longer if I got that sort of heart? Are there differences? No, not at all. And it's really interesting with with some of the strategies like this that we use, it, it's sort of interesting because we now have patients that are oftentimes in the hospital for a long time waiting for a transplant, but they're home in two weeks after the transplant. And so, I mean, there are obviously risks with any type of transplant, but but really the, the DCD aspect of it, I don't think really puts you at any added risk for complication over another. In fact, I would say that someone who's on an LVAD who's getting all the benefits of that device supporting their circulation and, you know, preventing their blood pressure and their lungs from getting too high and keeping their kidneys perfused. All the good things that come from that, I think, actually really matter in the post-op period, whereas with the new allocation system, sometimes these people are so sick that they a lot of those things I just mentioned are sort of very tenuous. And so even with a perfect organ, you can run into a lot of trouble after transplant. So I think, in a way, this this combination of still having access to those LVAD technologies, but then having this new path to transplant through DCD has just made the perfect combination of things to have everything in place so that the deck is stacked for a favorable outcome. Yeah, and and to that, I I feel great with my LVAD. Yeah. I you know I really feel good. It makes me think twice about going the next step. But um, you know, since I've done it so many times, I'm going to finish this journey. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a, that's how I kind of feel. It's about a hard it. decision for a lot of people for just the reason you yeah, mentioned. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, transplant's not a free lunch either. I mean, you know, suppression comes with risks, and 
Um, I think yes. probably most people are, are eager to get rid of their, their driveline. I, I, I mean, you can tell me what the worst part about it is, but it, it seems to me like that often comes up on the list. But uh, Yeah, it, you know what? It, it's, it's really subjective because the way I look at it, it's keeping me alive. Yeah. And the only thing I don't do is swim. And I grew up in a beach town, so I did enough of yeah. that. I, I can golf 18 holes, and I th my golf instructor told me I'm better with the batteries than without <laughs> them because it kind of slowed me down a bit. You yeah. know, <laughs> my swing was a little quick, so I'm living the life. But that's not to say that you know there are many that I've seen in the LVAD support groups in my hospital that are having a difficult time with the LVAD. So certainly, uh, my experience is not the same as someone else's nece necessarily. So well, if your golf game gets worse after your transplant, we're going to go back to Medtronic and Abbott and tell them they need to revisit their whole marketing approach. <laughs> For sure, that's right. I've tried to call them, but we'll go to that in, in another at another time. <laughs> so, so uh, this approach is still in trial phase. Would you consider this? to eventually replace mechanical circulatory support? Uh, I don't think we'll ever see it completely support, uh, replace MCS because I think that there's there's 6 million people in this country with heart failure. And, you know, I just, I, I'd love to think that we'll, we'll see changes that'll help people avoid that outcome. But the fact is, um, it's a it's the leading killer and um, there's a lot of people suffering from it. And so, I, I think there's always I think there's always going to be a need for it, and I also am very optimistic about the advances in technology, which are going to make it even better. So that getting an LVAD or a, or an MCS device is really just like getting a heart valve or a pacemaker or any of these other things that we're putting in that people don't necessarily feel quite as nervous about. Yeah, I've told people that know me. I said, you know, in three five years, th these batteries are going to be on the inside. So you know, they keep Absolutely. they keep improving it for sure. I can go on forever about this DCD uh, heart, and I thank you for your time regards that. But I'm going to shift gears a little bit, going back to the traditional method that we are living with now. And one of the biggest challenges in heart transplant process has been in the transport of these organs from the donor body in the hospital to the recipient waiting in the operating room at a place far away, somewhere in a 500-mile radius, I think, usually. And for that, a helicopter has been the mode of transit. So now enter the drones. I watched the work of Dr. Joseph Scalia and Matt Scassaro over there at University of Maryland doing this with uh, kidney transport from the Living Legacy OPO to the hospital rooftop. I think the flight was nine minutes, but it was quite extraordinary. It reminded me of all the historical steps, like I said before, that have been taken on a continuum of heart transplant progress. And um, are we are we going to really see the transporting of organs now with unmanned air vehicles? I, I think we have to. And I mean, just there's so many reasons for that. But I, I think it's absolutely imperative that, that we work with the FAA and, and the regulatory agencies to see this happen. And, and again, there's, I've talked a little bit today about how that clock is ticking on that organ, and especially in a DCD, how that becomes such a big factor in your outcome. And, and I just, I can't say enough about that, that every second counts. You have to shave off as many minutes as you can from the ischemic time. And so a drone is a phenomenal way to do that. But even beyond that, I haven't personally been acquainted with any of the surgeons who have lost their lives in recent years during uh, a flight for a procurement. But there, there have been two, two instances. Um, one was a, actually a plane that flew right out of my city here in Milwaukee, uh, heading over to Michigan for a transplant. And then there was another one that um, was uh, down in, in Florida and, and having previously worked at the Mayo Clinic, a lot of my 
my friends, uh, I believe it was the Mayo uh, Jacksonville uh, program that that was involved with that. And so there's there's just, uh, you know, we continue to kind of mourn the loss of, of those people who who gave their lives in trying to, to save one of their patients. And so, you know, I think from the perspective of, you know, just safety for the for the recipient who's waiting there for their organ and safety for the, the healthcare team as well. I think this is honestly one of the most exciting ideas that's come out in transplantation probably since uh, cyclosporin. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I was speaking to um, a nurse who was a transplant coordinator, and she mentioned to me a bit of trivia that the last vehicle that went over the bridge when 9-11 happened was uh, a vehicle that was carrying an organ. And so that could have been, you know, mm. a disaster if it didn't make it over the bridge. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's something I, I learned from her. She's very interesting. I think she's going to be on one of my coming uh, episodes. So uh, a wonderful person there. Um, interesting. Can we talk about a little bit about UNOS and the potential for the use of artificial intelligence in the matching of donors to recipients? Uh, Dr. David Weil on a previous episode had mentioned the fact that, you know, there has to be some subjectivity in the selection of donors and recipients. Are we close on the front of artificial intelligence in helping these decisions to be made? You know, we're getting there. Um, we've got a, a research team here um, with our, our precision medicine group that's working also with a, an AI group down in, in San Antonio, uh, the Southwest Research Institute, on using this phenomenal data that we have. You know, UNOS collects all these patient variables, and we've got thousands of different patients with all these different variables that we can look at. And it just turns out that with the computing power and with the AI algorithms that exist now, uh, we can do a much better job of, of matching that donor with that recipient than even what the smartest, most experienced cardiologist or surgeon can do, even when they're well-rested. So I think, um, and you know, that's, that's I think, a general theme of, of artificial intelligence is that it's the other healthcare applications that we've seen out at Stanford, they ran an experiment where it turned out a smartphone could, an app that you get on your smartphone could identify a melanoma if you took a picture of your skin rash uh, better than the best dermatologist at Stanford could. And so it's just there's certain tasks like that when you have to incorporate large volumes of data into your decision making that computers just beat us out in. And, and of course, uh, if you're familiar with the AlphaGo story or, or obviously any of the, the Jeopardy uh, competitions or, <laughs> or the, the different uh, evolution of computer chess, you can see how um, matching donors and recipients is, is, it's not a question of if we're gonna be beat by AI, it's just a question of how long it's gonna take. And it's probably not gonna take that long. Wow, yeah, so interesting. So finally, we're, we're just now perhaps coming up from the depths of COVID-19, which I was, I happen to be in the eye of the storm of as a supervisor for New York State Contact Tracing Initiative here mm -hmm. uh, in New York. Um, what effect did the virus have on heart transplantation and will this virus have an impact on heart transplantation going forward in light of the fact that immunosuppression is at the heart of successful outcomes in heart transplantation? Well, I think one of the most important things that we're going to see that has started during the pandemic that I believe will continue and, and accelerate after the pandemic is that in the past, we've always, it gets back to that conversation we were having about the drones, where in the past, we would always send out a team to do the organ procurement from our institution. And so 
Um, if if we had to fly across the country to do that, you know, so be it. Somebody would just have to cancel their their elective work that day and, and go pick up the organ. But after the risks of travel through through COVID nineteen became more concerning, we started seeing a lot more collaboration, and so we started harvesting organs for other programs and. Uh, you know, if there was a donor in our hospital that needed to go to the Cleveland Clinic, we would do the uh, we would do the procurement for them, and and it was sort of the, I think the community just became a lot more collaborative as a result of this necessity that was created through the pandemic. And so, interestingly, I think once we kind of got onto this idea, it's become something that I think people realize is something we should be doing routinely, and not just with DCD organs, but uh, brain dead organs, and and uh, really anything where there's going to be a, a centralized location for a, for a procurement, you know, sounds like a better idea than a bunch of us running all over the country just because we haven't worked out a better system to do that. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, this has all been so fascinating and um, I love your enthusiasm for your work. It just, it shows through your voice and, and your attitude. And thank you so much for providing the information in a way that we can all understand it. It's, it's, it's very complex. These are very complex issues. Thank you, Gary. It's, it's really a, a pleasure to be able to, to speak with somebody who has really uh, been able to understand and experience all these things in a way that very few people have. And I'm just, I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing through this podcast to make this accessible to so many people that are out there right now trying to wrestle with some of these difficult challenges. Yeah, thank you. Uh, as long, You know, the hardest part is getting people to listen. I mean, I'm, I'm full of experience and, uh, you know, from the patient end and a little bit from the doctor's end too. So I, I feel the pain on both sides, which, you know, puts me in a sort of a unique position. But, um, you know, certainly we all have to listen a little better and take these things a little more seriously so we can be there for each other. So, uh, you know, I think and I thank you for your comments about that. I'm, I'm happy to do it to, as well and, and for sharing this amazing information with us. I thank you so much for all you've done for the global community with your incredible dedication, your work in the field of organ plant, transplantation and for allowing me to feel so much a part of this mar marvelous history of heart failure therapies and especially for sharing this time with us. I hope we can do this again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Gary. Oh, great. Yeah, thank you so much. This was great. That is our podcast for today. Please join me next time for another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversation. Please visit our website at www.drheart2heart.net. That's D-R-H-E-A-R-T, the numeral two, H-E-A-R-T.net, for upcoming podcasts or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization. If you'd like to be a guest on the Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter podcast, please email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. Our podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You just have to search The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter. And until next time, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, The Heart Guy, wishing you peace and hope.